Hey guys, Aaron here. So over the last couple of months, I've had many people reach out to me through our various social media platforms asking if I had any recommendations for any books or podcasts that follow the same style of storytelling as Snafu, history being told through a fictional narrative. However, I haven't been able to really recommend anything because Snafu's kind of unique in that way. But back in December, I discovered a book that is absolutely worth your time. The book is called A Life Worth Dying For by Michael Edwards. If you like Snafu, you're going to love this book. It's about a B-17 pilot in World War II, sound familiar, and his experiences through World War II. I love the way this book is written. It's not that big of a book either. If you want that same Snafu style of storytelling, this is where you find it. Uh, it is the perfect book for you to read while you're waiting for season two to come out. Um, it's not that expensive either. I'll put the link down in the show notes and I'll also put it on our social media pages. Again, A Life Worth Dying For by Michael Edwards. Pick it up now. It's well worth the read. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. Please stay tuned after the podcast today for a brief message concerning the next episode. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listeners' discretion is advised. Charles had just returned home from work, and he set his briefcase down on the counter in the kitchen, along with some of the mail that he grabbed from the mailbox. The room had recently been renovated and painted his wife's favorite color, green. The cabinets, baseboard, crown molding, door trim, everything was painted green. The countertops were laid with a dark green tinted formica with gold trim to bring out the accent colors in the area rug underneath the kitchen table. The rug was a green, white, and gold pattern that resembled some sort of floral design. Even the wallpaper had been changed to a cream-colored wallpaper with thin green and gold lines running from top to bottom. As Charles walked to the kitchen table, which was a brand new green, cream, and gold dinette table and chair, he looked around the room with such disgust. He did not approve of the new color, but he agreed to it only because he promised his wife that she could design the kitchen to her liking if he had gotten his promotion. The truth was, he was now resenting her for her choices. He knew the color combo was all the rave now, and her friends from all around the block would come over and gawk at her kitchen, but frankly, he hated it. He didn't think it was going to be so green, that was when he heard the tender voice from his wife calling from the hallway. Charlie, is that you? Yes, honey, I'm home, Charles responded. Oh, I didn't hear you come in. I'll be right there, Bethany said, her voice echoing down the cream-colored wallpaper hallway. Charles got up and walked over to the cabinet to the left side of the sink where his coffee cups were kept. Opening the cabinet, he saw eight coffee cups all sitting upside down. All but one was some shade of green. Charles grabbed the only white porcelain coffee mug that was there and proceeded to pour himself a cup of coffee. Then, taking his coffee cup, he walked back to the kitchen table, 
but not before stopping and grabbing the pile of mail that he brought in. After grabbing it, he then sat down and started thumbing through the mail. He filed through the five envelopes until he had arrived at one that instantly made him feel sick. The world around him in an instance suddenly became silent, cold, and rigid. He looked down at the name and the address, and even though the name was right and the address read 7747 Earl Ave, all the hope he had left in him was poured into thinking that there must be a mistake. Slowly opening the envelope, he knew there were only two outcomes contained inside. He knew that he was either going to feel tormented or he was going to feel pulverized, nothing in between. Charles read the letter and the first line crucified any and all hope that he had left in his soul. The silence he was experiencing was now replaced with a rushing storm, loud and violent. Looking up, he saw his wife walking into the kitchen, her lips moving but no sound was coming out. For a few seconds, he soaked in and enjoyed his wife's innocence and ignorance, knowing full well that in the next few seconds, the contents of the letter would forever change his wife of 21 years. Bethany turned around and was disturbed by the way her husband was looking at her. His eyes were empty, his lips tight, his breathing was quick. In his hands laid an open envelope and an open letter. Asking him what was wrong, Charles didn't respond. He didn't know how. Bethany slowly walked towards her husband, asking him several more times to explain what was causing his demeanor. Charles stayed silent, his eyes following his wife as she walked towards him. Bethany slowly bent down to grab the letter. Charles' hands gripped the letter for a moment before his wife pulled it from his grasp. He wasn't ready for her reaction, but he knew it was coming. Bethany, opening the letter, began reading it, and before she could even finish it, tears formed in her eyes. Her skin had turned red. Then, the tender tone of her voice was transformed into a blood-curdling scream. Losing the ability to stand, she fell to the floor, her elbow ramming into the kitchen table with such force that it tipped over. The white porcelain coffee mug came crashing and shattered on the floor, with its contents now soaking the area rug. Charles met his wife on the floor and wrapped his arms around her, nestling his wife's face into his shoulder as she screamed and cried for what seemed like an eternity. With every grief-stricken scream, Charles could hear his wife's voice leaving her. Unfortunately, what Charles didn't realize was that day would be the last time he or anybody would ever hear his wife's voice as she would fall silent from grief for the remainder of her life.
13 days earlier, March 6th, 1944, 25,000 feet above Kloppenburg, Germany, 1025. It had been just five minutes since the first wave of fighters attacked the formation. The little friends had chased away the 109s and 190s away, and the little friends had not returned back to the formation. Over the last five minutes, three B-17s had begun falling behind due to battle damage and left the protection of the formation. Tommy had long since lost sight of St. Lunatic in the clouds below and didn't know what their fate was. The intercom was silent. Only the sounds of engines could be heard. In the nose, Rosie was mentally struggling. He felt ashamed that he froze up during that standoff that he had with the German airplane. He thought for sure that he could hit the plane and claim his first kill, but after seeing his own tracers come nowhere close to hitting their mark as a fast-approaching Nazi fighter came buzzing towards him, he began to feel weak and vulnerable. His arrogance had been messed with, his pride had been taken from him in less than an instant. Sitting back at his navigator's desk was Andy, who was a nervous wreck. His hand shook as he tried to angle his navigational position. What was bothering him was, throughout the entire battle, not a single bullet left the barrel of his guns. Not one. The fighters moved so damn fast that it was nearly impossible for him to see them, let alone shoot at them. Up in the cockpit, the boss and Jack were both shaken up. The boss was swimming in feelings of being overwhelmed, so much so that he was allowing Jack to take the controls of the aircraft while he controlled the engines. The bones in his arms ached from trying to keep his fortress in tight formation. Jack held the wheel of the yoke in his hands with a tight grip. Keeping the plane in tight formation was like trying to drive a car over a straight line on a frozen lake. The slightest move could mean death as Bob McGee was just a few feet next to them. But then again, was there even a point now trying to escape the possibility of death? Jack thought to himself. Willie, who was in his top turret, was scanning the sky, processing the same feelings that Jack was. Seeing that 109 buzz right over his turret was ingrained into his mind. He didn't know if it was because of the adrenaline or just the nerves, but it seemed like time itself had slowed down almost to a full stop during that close call. Closing his eyes, he was able to remember the markings on the side of the fuselage. How is that possible, he thought to himself. Skippy was still in the state of shock as he sat in his radio room. He continued looking over the notes that he had made and couldn't wrap his head around what he had written. Tommy was still in his ball turret, slowly spinning around looking for any specks in the clouds. His mind raced through the things he had witnessed. How was he ever going to tell anyone back home about what combat five miles above Earth was like? Maybe that's why veterans really ever talk about war, Tommy pondered as he continued his duties. Mills and Beans both looked out their gunner's openings, scanning the sky for any fighters. Mills' side was still bleeding. He could feel the blood running down his side and soaking his heated suit, which luckily, by some miracle, was still working. Al was sitting in the back, trying to massage his legs as they ached like crazy. He had been practically sitting on his knees for over an hour. 
He was too scared to leave his position, for the first wave of fighters had scared him half to death. Jack called for another oxygen check, and that was when a call came in through the intercom line. Green Dragon to group. Green Dragon to group. Bandit spotted, 12 o'clock low. I repeat, bandit spotted, 12 o'clock low. Rosie looked down in surprise that he didn't see them. You see them, Rosie? Jack asked. I'm looking. Rosie responded. As Rosie scanned the skies, he didn't see anything, so he aimed his sights downward. That was when he saw two dozen specks headed towards them. The fighters were traveling upwards about 5,000 feet below them. The fighters were climbing at a high rate of speed. I see them. Rosie called back with Andy standing behind him, looking through the nose cone. How many? The boss asked. I count maybe four squadrons. Jesus, called Willie. All right, men. Get ready for another fight. We're more exposed this time. Keep your eyes peeled. Remember, do not waste ammo. The boss called through the intercom. Within moments, the four squadrons of 109s came barreling through the formation, aiming their individual attacks on planes flying in the low wing of groups one and two. Rosie aimed his chin turret on the attacking fighters and watched as two 109s went downward from being hit by defending bombers. One 109 maneuvered through the tight spaces in between bomb groups and headed for group three, specifically the 300th. Rosie let off a few shots as Andy called them in. The 109 let out three bursts from its guns and cannon and landed a few hits in a B-17 flying in the number two spot in the 529th squadron. Rosie's tracer rounds came close to hitting the fighter, but none landed. 109, 12 o'clock low. Tommy said as he watched a different 109 come zipping through the formation, attacking a B-17 flying in the 96th bomb group. The 109 then did something that Tommy wasn't expecting. It pitched his nose upward and seemed to be heading straight towards him. Tommy didn't waste a moment before he aimed his sights and pressed down his trigger button, firing out several lines of fire from his twin 50s. Tommy watched as his bullets zipped past the 109's cockpit and engine as it began sending its own bullets in Tommy's direction. Bullets struck the left wing, only four feet away from Tommy's ball turret. The bullets ripped holes into the bull's left side flaps and up through the wing. Two cannon shells zipped past Tommy's turret. They were so close that Tommy watched as one flew right past him, missing his turret by a few inches. Tommy pressed down his trigger button with all of his might until the barrels of his guns were turning red. Then he realized that the 109 had left. Tommy! Tommy, you okay? Mills called out after seeing the bullets make contact with the left wing. Yeah? Tommy replied before he took a deep breath and went back to scanning the sky. In the nose, Andy watched as a 109 came screaming through the formation, coming in from the right side. 109 coming in, 2 o'clock level. Andy called in through the intercom. Since he was at the right side cheek gun, Andy knew it was his time to man up and take his first shots. Aiming his sights at the incoming 109, he, without thinking, pressed down the trigger, letting out a series of bullets in the direction of the 109. None of them made contact, but he felt proud of himself. Rosie watches a 109 dodge Andy's bullets, along with several others from other B-17s flying within range. 
That was when he saw the waste gunner from hell fire from above land two hits on the 109's right wing, which stopped it from attacking any further. 109 going down, 12 o'clock low. Hellfire's right waist gunner got him. Rosie called out. As he did, the 109 flipped upside down, and as it continued its path through the formation, a few seconds later, the pilot exited the cockpit. He's bailing out. Rosie added. Right waist, that must be Jaredite. Lucky shot of a bitch. Rosie responded over the intercom. Just then, Al called in. B-24 going down. 392nd, I think. 6 o'clock low. Three shoots. Skippy left his guns and added the note to his notebook. As he did, Tommy's voice rang over the intercom. 109, 3 o'clock low. Followed by both Beans and Tommy's guns firing on the plane. Tommy watches the incoming 109 let out a long stream of bullets and cannon fire, which struck both right side engines and cockpit of the B-17 flying in the number 5 spot of the 529 squadron. The 109 escaped banking downward to escape the incoming fire, but before it could get away, the B-17 it was attacking became a dead stick, colliding with the B-17 flying in the number 5 spot of the 531 squadron. Tommy watched in horror as both B-17s fell apart, sending its crew members in debris all over the sky. Luckily, none of it brought down any other planes. Holy shit! Two B-17s going down, 529th and 531st. Mills, having witnessed the carnage himself, replied, Jesus Christ! As Skippy went down to add the note to his notebook, that was when Rosie's distressed voice thundered over the intercom. 109 coming in, 12 o'clock level! The intensity of his call came from the fact that the 109 was heading at the bull straight on. Bullets from Hailing Mary came close to making contact with the 109, but none succeeded. The fighter let out two lines of fire, which were set in the bull's direction. Bullets ripped through the nose of the bull as Rosie let off a thunderous line of bullets from the chin turn. As the 109 went into a half roll and passed under the bull, a visibly shaken Rosie and Andy looked around at the several bullets punched into the areas surrounding them. Three holes were punched in the bottom of the nose cone, with the bullets having ripped through the back of the nose compartment under the cockpit. Another hole was located at the top of the nose compartment where it made contact with the controls in the cockpit. Luckily, by some miracle, the bullet didn't penetrate the center control box containing the throttles. Boss, Jack, are you alright? Rosie asked. We're alright, are you guys alright? boss asked back. We're okay, Rosie said looking over at Andy, whose face was a bleached white as he stood scared out of his mind at how close to death he just got. Al then saw the little friends arrive back at the formation, just above the clouds and called out, Little friends are back, 7 o'clock low. Thank God, Mills replied. Shortly after, the remaining fighters left with a few friendlies following them but not before another B-17 from the 100th in Group 1 succumbed to its wounds and fell towards Earth, spitting out seven parachutes. For the next 26 minutes, the formation made its way through their next waypoint, which was known as the Decision Point. However, as they got closer, the formation was being haunted by a third wave of enemy fighters that were circling above the formation, waiting for the little friends to engage with them. The little friends, however, didn't engage. They knew all too well of the tactic. They knew that not too far away, possibly under the 
cover of clouds below the formation lied more enemy fighters waiting to attack the unescorted bombers. For the next few minutes, the boss's crew watched as the four squadrons of ME-109s circled around the back of the formation and angled their incoming attacks. The 109s made contact with groups 4 and 5 way off in the back. The little friends met them there. Al thought for a moment that the attack would remain in the back this time. However, as Al watched the attack, one squadron of ME-109s flying above the formation head towards the front, and one by one each of the six ME-109s broke off and made their attacks on whatever group looked weakest. Two 109s remained in the squadron by the time they got to Al. Aiming his sights on the incoming fighters, Al called in. Two 109s coming in, 7 o'clock high. I see him. Willie fired back. Just then, both 109s dove downward and made their attacks on the group. The one 109 let off a line of fire, which landed in the tail section of Paper Doll, and the other 109, the one Al and Willie were getting ready to fire upon, made a quick turn towards the bull and let off a line of fire just before it dodged Al's return fire. The shots given off by the German plane were set in the direction of the nose compartment. Two bullets struck the left wing between the number one and number two engines. Another bullet struck the nose just under Andy's navigator's desk. The bullet hit the oxygen tank under Andy's navigational drift meter, and in the instance, a fireball filled the nose compartment, sending Andy onto the floor and Rosie over his bombsite. The blast blew out the back right plexiglass window and destroyed Andy's drift meter. Fire clung onto the metal sides and canvas cover that separated the top section of the nose compartment from the bottom section of the cockpit. Andy was frozen with fear as Rosie quickly jumped up to grab the fire extinguisher, which was dangerously close to the fire. Flames singed Rose's gloves as he grabbed the red canister and aimed it at the corner of the compartment. Within seconds, the fire was put out. The back right corner of the nose compartment was scorched with black, and the green canvas was now reduced to an ashy color. Rosie was so consumed with trying to put out the fire, he didn't realize that the boss was yelling for him over the intercom. Up in the cockpit, the boss and Jack saw smoke fill the cockpit. Jack could feel the intense heat by his feet. Fire in the nose. It's out now. Rosie's voice said over the intercom. Rosie turned around to see Andy, and that was when he saw Andy sitting on the floor of the nose compartment holding his right thigh. It was bleeding. In the middle of Andy's right thigh took three fragments which punctured his skin. All three were from the casing of the oxygen tank that exploded just next to him. Andy's ears were ringing, his right hand pressing on the three bloody holes in his thigh. That was when he realized a piece of metal from the oxygen tank was sticking out of his skin by half an inch. His gloved fingers bumped into the metal piece, which sent a sharp nerve pain throughout his body. Andy's hit! Rosie called over the intercom. Hit? How bad? The boss called out. I don't know. Rosie responded. That was when Willie's voice thundered. One tank's coming in! Eleven o'clock high! The boss looked ahead and saw what Willie was calling in. Two squadrons of twin-engine ME-110s with rockets under their wings were headed right towards them. Damn it. Jack, go down and help them in the nose. The boss said, looking over at Jack. Jack couldn't get out of his seat fast enough. Pure adrenaline rushed through his body as he practically leaped over the engine column in the center of the cockpit and down the hatch into the crawl space under the cockpit, which led to the nose. 
Entering through the nose opening, Jack was stunned to see Andy sitting just behind Rosie's bombardier's chair with his thigh and hands covered in blood. Looking up, he saw Rosie getting back into his chair, grabbing his gun controls. Jack then quickly moved Andy to the scorched right corner of the nose compartment, leaving a trail of blood as he did. He then turned around and headed towards the left cheek gun and aimed his sights in the direction of the incoming planes. Just as he did, the 110s made their attack on Group 2. Two of the planes shot off five rockets, which all but one missed. One of the rockets landed in a bomb bay of a B-17 flying in the 305th bomb group, flying in the high wing of Group 1. The rocket detonated all the bombs inside, turning the 10-men B-17 into a fireball. The explosion was so powerful that two B-17s nearly stalled and collided as they were thrown around. Luckily, both of them recovered. Debris now filled the sky with loads of metal pieces and shrapnel from the exploded bomber, and they were sent hurling towards other B-17s, ripping through them like small knives. A few pieces hit the bull, which sounded like rocks hitting the thin metal walls of the bomber. The 110s flew past the formation and soon circled back around for another attack, this time on Group 3. As this was going on, in the back of the plane, Al was aiming his sights on a 109 flying off the plane 7 o'clock and head to make another attack on the 96th or the 300th, but Al's pursuit of the fighter was quickly halted when Tommy's voice rang through the intercom. 109 coming in, 6 o'clock low. Watch it, Al. He's coming for you. Just then, Al aimed his guns downward, and before he could even get off a shot, bullets ripped through the tail section of the bull. Bullets tore into the rudder, left and right horizontal stabilizer and elevators, and two bullets cracked through the glass box where Al's head was located. Luckily, both bullets missed Al's head, but not by much. Within seconds, the 109 dove away, only to be shot down by a plane in the 96th. Al looked over his body and was surprised that he wasn't injured. Looking around his gunner's position, Al wondered how the hell he was still alive. Al! 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 Damn it, you okay? Tommy yelled over the intercom. Call in, Al! The boss added. I'm fine. Tails all shot up. Al responded. After hearing that, the boss tested the controls, and so far they seemed to be operating just fine. Okay. Cause calm down. Nothing seems to be damaged. As long as you're okay, Al. The boss said back. Two 110s coming in, 3 o'clock level. Beans called in over the intercom. From where Beans was standing, he saw two ME-110s headed straight towards the formation from his side. Beans aimed his gun sight in the direction of the incoming fighters, and that's when he saw both planes fire off four rockets in the direction of the 300th. A rocket zipped past the bull and bombed McGee, and the others came close but none landed any hits. Beans fired his waist gun at the two incoming planes, struggling to keep his eyes open as the thundering sound of a Browning 50 caliber gun, even with earphones on, was deafening. Then Beans realized that not only were his tracers headed in the direction of the two planes, but another set of tracers were coming close to hitting the two German planes. The two incoming planes began unloading their ammo from their 8mm guns, which blew a few holes in the tail section of Bomb McGee. Just as Beans was getting ready to watch the two 110s pass by overhead, one of the Nazi planes began to trail smoke from its right side engine. On Mills' side, the damaged 110 banked to the right and flipped upside down. Then, as Mills watched both the pilot and his gunner try to bail out of the plane, Willie's voice rang through the intercom. 
I got one. I got one of those bastards. Anyone see that? Calm down, Willie. Can anybody confirm that? The boss asked. I can. Hot potato, Willie. That was a good hit. Beans confirmed. He's bailing out now. Mills added. Good job, Willie. Jack, how are we looking down there? The boss asked. In the nose, Jack was gripping his cheek gun and waiting for a 109, attacking off in the distance to get closer. All clear down here, Jack replied. Just then, the 109, with smoke trailing behind him now, banked in the direction of the 300th and made his way to where the bull was. Flipping and maneuvering its way around other B-17s, Jack felt like the 109 was headed right towards him. Jack aimed his gun sight and pulled the trigger. 109 coming in, 11 o'clock level! Jack said after getting one line of fire off. The gun barked out several lines of fire, but stopped when he thought maybe he had hit the plane. However, it became clear to him that another B-17 had landed a fatal hit, not him. But Jack watched in horror as the 109 continued its path and headed right towards him. Jack, getting ready to pull the trigger again, watched as the scared German pilot came hurling towards him. He noticed that his propellers were now slowing down, and Jack watched as he flipped upside down and attempted to bail out. An eager gunner from Paper Doll blasted the 109, and the fighter broke apart into several pieces. Jack watched as the German plane disappeared underneath the bull. Whoa, who got that one? Tommy asked after seeing the downed airplane zip past his turret. I don't know. Jack replied. Over the next few minutes, not a single attack came close to where the 300th were flying. What was left of the German fighters made their final attacks on groups flying behind them. Within six minutes, only friendly P-51 Mustangs were left flying in the air along with the bombers. Twenty minutes later, the formation had passed the decision point and were now 13 minutes away from the IP the point at which the bomb run would begin. Over the last 20 minutes, three more B-17s had fallen behind due to battle damage, and all three were from Group 1. The crew of the bull watched as they all disappeared helplessly into the clouds below them. Inside the bull, Jack had returned to his co-pilot seat and was now back at the controls. The boss had gone down and checked out Andy's wound and helped him get back into his navigational seat at his desk. Now, the boss was returning from checking out Mills' side and the damage done to the tail section. As the boss walked through the bomb bay, he couldn't believe how much damage his plane had already taken. Once he arrived back at his pilot seat, he looked over at Bob McGee and Paper Doll and saw that they too had sustained much damage. The men in the back of the plane were getting low on ammo, the worst one off being Al in the back. He was down to possibly just three more seconds of ammo. He was going to have to be extra careful going forward about how much ammo he was going to send towards planes trying to kill him. The boss looked over at Jack and wondered how Jack was feeling after going down into the nose and firing at incoming fighters. Without saying anything over the intercom and drawing attention to him, the boss used his right hand and nudged Jack's shoulder. Jack looked over at the boss with concern. The boss gave Jack a big smile underneath his mask and gave him a thumbs up. Jack, thinking the gesture was strange, responded back with a head nod. The boss then said over the intercom, Pilot's a co-pilot. I had the plane now. 
Thanks, Jack. Jack replied back with a simple, Co-pilot to pilot. You're welcome. Then, the awkward moment became another terrifying one, when a horrifying sound appeared. Rosie's call over the intercom identified the sound. Slack 12 o'clock level. The exploding shells puffed up around the formation so quickly that it felt like the sky was turning black. The crew of the bull could only hear the woofing sound of flak when they were close enough that shrapnel could hit them. With each black puff and boom sound, it meant that death was possibly paying a visit to either mangle someone or take someone. Flak jackets and helmets are now, the boss thundered over the intercom. He and Jack quickly took turns handling the controls while the other one grabbed their green painted army helmets and thick flak vests each one weighing 40 pounds. In the back of the plane, Beans was putting on his flak jacket and noticed that Mills wasn't putting his on. Beans turned around and tapped Mills and pointed to the flak jacket. Mills shook his head. Beans thumped Mills again and forcefully pointed at the flak jacket. Mills shook his head again. Mills simply didn't want to put the jacket on because the side strap would rub up against his wound, but Beans was not going to give up. He bent down, grabbed Mills' flak vest, and thrust it into Mills' chest. Mills stubbornly shook his head yet again. Just then, a flak shell exploded right next to Mills' gunner opening. The bull shuddered and drifted six feet to the right. Mills and Beans both were thrown to the right side of the waste compartment. Quickly getting up, Mills looked back at his station. To the left of Mills' gunner station were over a dozen holes ranging from the size of dimes the size of quarters. Is everyone okay? The boss asked, trying to get the plane back into position. We're all right, Beans replied back. Just as the others reported in, Mills quickly grabbed his flak vest and began putting it on. Beans came to his rescue and helped him. Up in the nose of the plane, Rosie watched as a flak shell exploded under a B-17, flying in the 305th which took off its right wing and caused the bomber to flip over on top of another B-17 flying next to it. The two bombers fell towards Earth together, and as Rosie called in the collision, he watched for parachutes, but none were seen. At his navigator's desk, Andy was in a lot of pain from his leg wound. Every exploding flak shell made the plane bounce like a car on a bumpy road, and Andy could feel each bump. He looked down at his map, trying to take his mind off the pain and exploding shells around him. He looked and saw that the formation was flying 20 miles outside of the center of downtown Berlin. Up in the cockpit, the boss was stunned by the hundreds of black puffs that covered the sky around him. And just in one second, he watched seven flak shells explode within 60 feet of his plane. And that was just from what he could see. The majority of the flak shells he saw had no sound, for they were too far away. Ones that were less than 60 feet away made a sound that reminded the boss of a firework display on the 4th of July that he had witnessed back home. Trying to help the boss keep the plane in tight formation, Jack looked over at the flight controls and as he did, a flak shell exploded under the bull and the fortress was thrust upwards by about 10 feet. The boss had a good handle on the beast and was able to lower the nose back down and get his plane back into the number 5 spot. As he did, Jack called for crew checks to make sure everyone was alright. One by one, thankfully, all voices came back saying that they were fine. However, Willie seconded his call with some disturbing news. 
boss, we got a big fucking hole in our wing. What? The boss asked. Yeah, just to the right of the number four engine. Willie called out. Jack turned his head to take a look at the damage done to the wing. Sure enough, a hole, about the size of a football, was punched through the wing, just inches from the outboard number four engine. Jack looked down to check the meters on the engines and saw that no fuel, oil, or hydraulic fluid was dropping, at least not fast enough for him to notice. Just as he was about to ask the boss something, another flash shell exploded just to the right of the cockpit. Shrapnel peppered the area just behind Jack's seat, and after the ear-piercing blast, the boss looked over and saw that Jack's head was slumped downward. His helmet and headphones were gone. Willie, Jack's hit! Jack's hit! The boss panicked. He's what? Willie asked. He's hit, goddammit! Get down here and look at him! The boss said, trying to check Jack out while keeping his plane on a steady course. Willie left his top turret and immediately saw the holes cut into the metal siding behind Jack's seat. The window that sat behind Jack had three small puncture marks embedded in the plexiglass like someone had tried to break the window by throwing rocks at him. Willie felt the blast hit the plane but didn't think it was close enough that it would make any damage. He then looked at Jack and saw that he was slumped over, his head bobbing forward. Willie, standing behind Jack, looked him over and saw blood was running down his face and neck. The blood seemed to be coming from his ear and as he moved Jack's head to see if he had sustained a head injury, he concluded that the blood was coming from a ruptured eardrum. He tried waking Jack up, but to no avail. As Willie went to stand between the boss and Jack to get a better look at his co-pilot, his left foot kicked Jack's helmet. Picking up the helmet, he also saw Jack's headphones and grabbed them too. Lifting up the helmet, he saw that the area, just above the earpiece cover that hung over Jack's headphones, had a large dent in it with a small crack in the middle. Looking up above Jack's head, Willie saw a small piece of shrapnel sticking out just behind the overhead window. The piece was about two inches big, and Willie directed the boss's attention to it and pointed to the dented helmet. The boss, understanding what Willie was trying to say, then pulled his mask down and yelled out to Willie, Is he okay? Is he hit? No! His ears are bleeding though! Let me know if he wakes up! boss nodded his head, signaling that he understood. In the radio room, Skimpy was looking through the bomb bay at what was going on in the cockpit. As Willie was checking Jack out, Skimpy was relaying what was happening to the others over the intercom. Mills, Beans, and Al and the others patiently waited for good news. That's when Skimpy saw Willie give him a thumbs up, followed by the boss saying, Alright everyone, Jack's fine, he's just knocked out. Everyone in the plane felt relieved, but only for a few moments. Skippy went back to his radio desk as the plane continued to bounce like crazy from the exploding flag shells. Grabbing his pencil, he noticed that since he had gotten up to check on what was going on in the cockpit, four small quarter-sized holes riddled the side of the radio compartment just next to his seat. Looking down, his metal chair had dents all over the back and the side. Skippy didn't even hear the blast that made the holes. Looking out through the left side radio window, he saw a few holes riddled the wing just behind the fuel tanks. As Skippy looked out from the window, another flash shell exploded just above the reading compartment. Shrapnel rained down over the bull, and he saw several more holes punched into the top of the bomb bay and radio compartment. Willie even commented on the last blast by saying, 
Jesus Christ! That was too fucking close for comfort. You okay, Willie? The boss asked. I'm fine. Anyone else? Willie asked. No, I just want to get the hell out of here. Al said from the back of the plane. We can't. We're almost at the IP. We gotta fly through this. Rosie said. Damn it, why do we have to have Berlin as our first mission? Mills called out over the intercom. B-17 going down, 12 o'clock low. Tommy called in. For the 91st. Rosie added to the call. As Willie went to add the note to his notebook, that was when Mills called in on another down airplane. B-17 from the 531st low squadron going down. Mills watched as two close flag shells shredded a B-17 with the words Blackbird painted on the nose, obliterating the number four engine in his compartment. The B-17 fell towards Earth, only spitting out one lonely parachute. Skippy then did something that he instantly regretted. He went to his receiving radio and turned to the group's frequency, expecting to hear commands coming in from the lead aircraft about taking evasive maneuvers. However, all Skippy heard over his headphones were dozens of screaming airmen who were calling in SOS calls and Mayday calls as their planes plummeted towards Earth. Among the Mayday calls were men crying out to their wives, mothers, and loved ones. Skimpy even heard one voice crying out to God that he would save him so he could see his son one last time. Skimpy quickly shut off the radio and began to break down. Beans, who was trying his hardest to stay in an upright position, the plane was bouncing so aggressively, saw Skimpy hunched over his radio desk with his hands wrapped around the back of his head. Beans turned around to phase Mills and got his attention, pointing him in the direction of Skimpy. When Mills turned around, he saw Skimpy was swaying his body back and forth, and he was attempting to take his leather flying helmet off and cover his ears. Mills didn't hesitate for a moment before he disconnected his headset, switched from his main oxygen tank to a small green-painted portable one, and headed to the radio room. As Mills walked, the strap on his heavy flak jacket pressed and rubbed against his wound, sending bolts of pain throughout his body. But as he fought through the discomfort, he arrived at Skimpy. Mills knelt down, trying to keep his stance, and then tried to help him by putting his helmet back on his head and calming him down some more. As Mills was doing so, Jack was waking up in the cockpit. His hearing was reduced to an annoying ringing sound on the left side of his head. His right side was completely deaf. An overwhelming pain from his right ear pierced his head as he tried to make sense of what happened. He felt blood on the side of his face by his ear, and he felt the blood running down his neck. He also then noticed that his pants were now soaked due to the fact that he had urinated on himself. Feeling a mixture of embarrassment, confusion, and panic, he looked over at the boss whose eyes were wide and bloodshot red. Jack saw the boss giving Jack a thumbs up, to which Jack shook his head. The boss then asked for Willie to help Jack out some more, which Willie was more than glad to do so. While Willie tended to Jack, that's when Andy called out over the intercom. Navigator the crew, we're at the IP. The formation banked to the left a bit, and as they leveled off, headed towards the heart of Berlin, the flak began to pick up. Bombay doors with other bombers were opening, and that was when Rosie announced over the intercom. Bombay doors opening, we're on the bomb run. In the radio room, Mills had calmed Skippy down enough that he felt it was okay to return to his station. But as Mills stood up, he saw the Bombay doors opening, and suddenly, Berlin was visible, 26,000 feet below them. 
The flack was getting more and more intense with each passing minute. So much flack was in the air, all the men could smell the thick clouds of cordite. From where Al was sitting, the sky looked two shades darker there was so much flack in the air. Off in the back of the bomber train, several B-17s and B-24s were being blown out of the sky. Al had called them in as fast as he could, but there were so many that it was hard for him to keep up. In the front, Rosie was huddled over his bombsite, looking through the lens at the world that was below him. Smoke screens covered the landscape, and the cloud cover was horrible on the northern side of the city. It was a miracle that the lead navigator was even able to identify where he was in the clouds and smoke screens being so thick. Looking up ahead at the green dragon, he noticed that a huge chunk was taken from the tail of the lead plane. More than half the green dragon's rudder was ripped off, but the well-built fortress continued to fly straight. Rosie kept his eyes on the open bomb bay doors as he waited for bombs to fall from them. Once he saw that, he could release his bombs. Suddenly, the concentration was shattered when he saw a flak shell explode just in front of Bomb McGee's right wing. Just seconds later, a fire broke out on Bomb McGee's number four engine. Smoke trailed from its wing, and Rosie waited to see if the fire was put out. Bomb McGee hurt, engine on fire. Rosie called in. For the next few seconds, Rosie, Andy, the boss, and the others watched as Bob McGee fell behind, the fire on the engine being reduced to a smoldering feathered prop. Fire looks to be out, falling behind now. Mills called as he watched the older B-17 fall behind. Now, only four planes remained of the seven that had originally made up the high squadron of the 300th. Paper Doll looked to be in good shape, and the other two planes in front of them looked to be flying straight as well. Skippy said a quick prayer for the men on board Bomb McGee as he watched them disappear behind his plane. He looked down at his notebook and saw that just in the last two minutes, he had recorded a total of seven B-17s and B-24s had been blown out of the sky, and another four B-17s had fallen behind and away from the formation. His heart was too heavy for him to bear, but he couldn't let his friends, like Mills, down. Rosie's eyes were now glued onto the Green Dragon. Group 1 had already released their bombs on an aircraft factory just to the south of the city, and Group 2 was now moments away from releasing their bombs on a target four miles east of the ball bearings plant that the 300th and the other two bombardment groups of making up Group 3 were aiming to bomb. Rosie had his left hand resting on a green box, which had a metal toggle switch sticking out of the top. The box was no bigger than an outlet box, and keeping Rosie's hand from accidentally hitting the toggle early was a red U-shaped fence that stopped the toggle from being pushed. The only way the toggle could be pressed is if the red fence was lowered, and so once Rosie saw bombs falling from the lead plane, he then would flip the fence down and hit the toggle, releasing his bombs. As Rosie watched the lead plane, an odd thought entered into his mind. He thought of the time that he had returned home from school and was greeted by his younger cousin, Shmuel, who at the age of 14 years old met Rosie for the first time. Rosie's aunt, Shmuel's mother, moved to Bonn, Germany, where she met and got married to Shmuel's father, who was a proud Jewish-German citizen. While Rosie's mom never told Rosie the reason why Shmuel was living with them in New York, Shmuel would later tell Rosie about the horrific things that he saw the Nazis do to innocent people.
The young 14-year-old told Rosie of a time that he watched a, quote, German policeman take a baker from his shop and executed him in the streets. When he asked his mother as to why the baker was shot in broad daylight in front of innocent people, his mother told him that it was because he had helped three Jewish workers escape from the Gestapo, who were rounding up Jewish people in the city the previous night. Shmuel didn't understand, and his mother never explained any further to him about the situation. However, by the time Shmuel arrived in New York, he had learned about what the Nazis were doing in his home country. The last time Shmuel ever saw or heard from his parents was the day they had put him on a train headed for Cherbourg, France, where a friend of his dad's would help him get onto a ship bound for America. That was almost four years ago, and as rumor has it, they were exposed for being Jewish and were taken to a prison. But nothing was ever confirmed. Rosie's hatred for Nazis all came from those stories that Shmuel had told him. When Rosie joined the Army Air Corps, he swore to his cousin that he would shed Nazi blood on his behalf and on behalf of his aunt and uncle. However, he now realized that below him were not just Nazis, but also Germans like his aunt and his uncle. Rosie knew that not everyone living in Berlin was a Nazi, and he knew that the target they were bombing was not some Nazi war ministry headquarters or military facility, but a factory where non-Nazi workers were working their jobs to put food on the table for their families. Sure, the products they were producing and making were used for the war machine, but what about the scared non-Nazi workers who were just doing their duties as fathers to provide for their families? Rosie wasn't supposed to be having these sorts of thoughts seconds away from unloading 6,000 pounds of ordnance on top of a city, but he was. These thoughts made Rosie feel very uncomfortable and uneven, but that was all pushed away when Rosie saw what he had been obsessing about for way too long. Bombs began to fall from the bomb bay of the Green Dragon, and hitting the toggle switch, Rosie called out, Bombs away! Willie, who was now standing between the boss and Jack, helping to look over the controls, turned around to see bombs falling away from Loda Bull. Mills watched as bombs fell from other bombers below them and from Paper Doll flying next to them, each plane lifting up from a sudden change in weight. The bull then pushed up, like an elevator quickly rising to the next floor way too fast. Beans held on for dear life as he was getting tired of being thrown around. Tommy in the ball turret watched as bombs fell towards Earth and aimed his turret downward to catch a glimpse of the hell that they had just unleashed. Bomb doors closing, Rosie said over the intercom. Tommy, keep an eye out on the target. Let us know what you see, the boss called out. Roger that, boss, Tommy called back with great excitement. Moments later, the thunderous sound of bombs changing the landscape below them was hurled over the atmosphere. Within seconds, the city below them was turned into a massive cloud of flames and smoke. From where Al was sitting, looking downward onto the earth below him, it looked like the gates of hell were opening up to swallow anything and anyone that came close to him. Al was reminded of hearing stories about the great battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation. Was this it? Was this massive display of fire, death, and destruction the end of everything? It shocked Al to think about it, but he honestly would believe it if someone told him that he was getting a front row seat to the end of the world. Navigator to pilot, you're at the waypoint. 
Your new heading to the rally is 035. Again, 035. Roger that. How do we do, Tommy? Asked the boss. Tommy didn't know how to respond. All that came out of his mouth was, You did good, boss. Just as the boss was going to answer, a flak shell exploded just as the bull was turning towards the heading with the other fortresses. The shell exploded just above the left wing, and Willie, who was standing between the boss and Jack still, immediately noticed that the left side gasoline tank pressure was dropping. Willie called in the problem, and quickly spread into action, first by looking out the left side cockpit window and trying to identify where the problem was coming from. Seeing a significant sized group of holes on the outboard side of the number one engine, Willie went to the bomb bay and tried to transfer gas from the outboard tank to the inboard tank. Luckily, there was plenty of room in the inboard tank, since they were being used first. Going back to the cockpit, Willie checked to see if the problem was continuing, and he saw that the pressure, while it was still low, was remaining steady. After the boss thanked Willie for his good work, that's when more calls were coming in over the intercom. B-17 going down, one o'clock low, Rosie said. Just then, a B-17 flying in the 531 squadron, flying the number 4 spot, took a direct hit from a flak shell between its number 3 and 4 engine. The shell hit the fuel tanks, which caused the entire right wing to explode, sending shrapnel all over the place. One of the B-17's engines was sent through the air and nearly collided with a tail section of a passing B-17. As Mills went to call in the downed planes, the Boston saw a flak shell explode not too far away from Hellfire from above's right wing. The blast peppered the right side of the bomber. Within seconds, smoke began pouring from the number three engine. Mickey's planes hit. The boss said, looking over at Jack, who looked concerned. However, the fortress kept flying. Seconds later, the number three engine was feathered, and the smoke was eradicated. What shocked the boss was, Hellfire was still keeping in formation and wasn't falling behind. B-17 from the 96th going down, 8 o'clock low. Got an engine on fire. Mills called in. Just then, Tommy watches the B-17 from the 529th squadron, flying in a before spot, had a flak shell explode underneath and sent the bomber upward. The B-17 flew right in the path of the prop wash from the Green Dragon. In the instance, the bomber was forced upward and into a stall. The fortress flipped upside down and as it did, the radio operator was thrown out through his opening and Tommy watched as he left the plane safely. B-17 from the lead squadron falling out of control. Radio guy got out though. Tommy called in over the radio. I saw that too. Mills commented. Tommy watched as a large B-17 tried to regain control, but it was entirely too late. The plane was already headed straight towards Earth at a violent speed. Tommy tried to follow the plane, but before he could, it disappeared into the clouds. Rosie, at the front of the plane, watched as Group 3 and 2 linked back up with Group 1. This is when the formation reached what was referred to as the rally point. Moments after they arrived at this point, the flak began to lighten up, much to the crew's pleasure and relief. The boss took in a deep breath as the woofing sound of flak started to disappear just behind them. He also felt proud of himself for the fact that he and his crew just went through the thickest and densest flak field the 8th Air Force had ever seen or been through up until that point, and they made it. The boss's feelings of pride and accomplishment were now suddenly crushed when he realized that he was only halfway done. Now, 
he and his crew had to fight their way out of Nazi-fortified Europe. Thank you for listening to Episode 6 of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. If you'd like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Canso 34 Studios, a DIY project helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies over Europe in World War II. I hope we do it justice. Stay tuned after the podcast for a brief message. And thank you for listening and stay tuned next week for episode 7 of Snafu. Dead End. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode and thank you for listening to the podcast overall. I hope you guys are enjoying it. I hope you guys are getting a lot out of it. Uh, Unfortunately, next week's episode, episode 7, will be released on Saturday, August 14th instead of the usual Friday, August 13th. This is a one-time thing. We ran into a technical issue that we thought we had gotten rid of back in April, but unfortunately, because of the equipment that we currently have and us trying to upgrade to something better, we're just trying to do with what we have. So if you could be so patient with us as to wait one more day for the next episode, we would greatly appreciate that. If you need something to fill up your time, please visit our Patreon page. There's so much content for you waiting for you there. All you have to do is donate just $3 or $10 a month to get that bonus content. It's super simple. It's super easy. And it really, I think, helps to give you a different level of experience with the podcast. Because not only do you get to hear the characters, you will actually get to see what they look like. You get to read their bios. You get to see cool little bit pieces of information that the average audience member doesn't get to hear or know. There's also pictures of the formation um, from this mission that you heard today. There are pictures of planes. There are pictures of buildings. There are pictures of so many cool little things that, again, only help to enhance your experience as you listen to Snafu. Every dollar donated goes a long way to help this podcast get better equipment, upgrade to better things, and ultimately give you guys a better experience. So we appreciate all the support and love you've given us so far. If you want to share a loved one's story, someone who fought in World War II, please send them in. If you have questions about the podcast so far, please send them in, whether it be through our website or any one of our social media pages. We would love to talk to you. We would love to connect with you. We would love to hear those stories. Those stories is what keeps this podcast going. It's what keeps me going because we want to make sure that we give those veterans a chance for their voice to be heard and their stories to be told. So thank you so much for listening. Please send those in. And I look forward to hearing what you think about the next episode on August 14th. This is Aaron from Cancer 34 Studios signing off. See you next week.